We have been talking about the five covenants we make in the endowment session of the temple. I really do think these need to be written on the backs of your eyelids so that you see them constantly. You see them in your sleep. These five covenants are the essence of temple worship. So what are they? The second thing we're talking about, one fundamental reality about the temple is how are temples different than chapels? What do we do in temples versus what do we do in chapels? The Lord is not one to repeat in a temple everything we just did in the chapel for no other reason than the repetition. So we've been talking about a transition from telestial to terrestrial to celestial. And quite often, the work of the chapel is this. The work of institute is this. The work we do in public where everyone is invited. Because everyone on this planet needs to transition from telestial to terrestrial. So our chapels say everyone welcome, because we're going to talk about this. Come into our chapels and overcome the telestial part of you. And then the Lord says, but we're not going to stop there. Those of you who are interested in taking the next step, let's go to a place where we can talk about taking the next step. So we have to see the temple as a new invitation to go beyond where we've gone in our chapels. And I would suggest to you that the work of the temple is here. We go into the temples to be taught how to be celestial beings. Anciently, there were three sections, a telestial portion, and then we went into the holy place, which represented the terrestrial, and then we go into the holy of holies, which represents the celestial. So those of you who've been with us all semester, what's the main difference between terrestrial and celestial? What's this change? Let's start here, maybe. What's this change? I'm not committing to sin. So this is a change of action. These people do, these people don't do. Or these people don't do and these people do. It's an action. And so the Lord says, will you do what I ask? This is an outward. So how do we get baptized? Here, how do we make covenants here? We make them outwardly. Your whole body goes into a font and washes and buries. What is this change? It's an inner, it's what we are. It's how I think, it's how I process. Can anyone see the difference between a terrestrial and a celestial person? If all you saw was my behavior, would you know the difference here? Because the difference is where? Inside me. So that pattern needs to be taken to the five covenants of the temple. When we obey the first, when we commit to the first one, the law of obedience, what was chapel version of the law of obedience? I will do it. I will do what you want me to do. What then was temple version of law of obedience? I'm already doing it. 
I couldn't go to the temple if I wasn't doing it. So what's temple version of the law of obedience? I will, it will be my nature to do it. I won't force myself to do it. I just do it naturally because it's what I am. Do you see how that's an inner? Okay, do you see that pattern? So today I'm going to ask a question I don't know you've ever thought about. What is the difference between the chapel? Let me get rid of this word. What is the difference between the chapel law of chastity and the temple law of chastity? Would you agree they're not the same? Similar, but not the same. I just don't think the Lord would pull me into the temple to have me repeat the same covenant I made when I was baptized. Anyone who violates laws of chastity might lose their membership in the church. So clearly laws of chastity are required to become a terrestrial person. So take it up a notch. What is temple law of chastity? What is the upper level? Now remember, this is, I will do or not do. These people don't do. What is temple law of chastity? So we've seen that temple covenants go where? Inward. So those of you who have ever listened to Soul Symbols and Sacraments by President Holland when he was at BYU, he then kind of gave an apostolic version after he became an apostle. If you've ever listened to Soul Symbols and Sacraments, I'm guessing you were sitting either in the Marriott Center. No, you're way too young. Either you've been sitting at home or you've been in a chapel setting. And as you've listened the first time, tell me what you probably were appropriately thinking. This is why I should not do that. So here's my invitation today. We are going to rewatch of soul symbols and sacraments. And we're not going to get the whole AIDS discussion that he gives at first. And we're not going to get to sacraments. I want to give, I want to start with his why. Why do Latter-day Saints live the law of chastity? And again, I'm pleading with you to go beyond this. Why do Latter-day Saints inwardly live the law of chastity? Why is the law of chastity written into their very being? Why is chastity a definition of who they are? And then we'll do souls, and then we'll do symbols, and then I want to hear your comments, okay? So that's my question. You have all had the mindset, who's married here? I think I got two married. <clears throat> Three, I counted myself. 
Most non-married people think of the law of chastity in terms of what? Chapel. The law of chastity tells me there's certain things I shouldn't do until I'm married. Okay. That needs, that was yesterday's discussion. Invitation. What is temple? Law of chastity. What does the law of chastity, how does the law of chastity define who I am? How is it written into my very being? Of souls and symbols, but no sacraments. We'll just leave the sacraments for another day. Okay, everyone understand the assignment? So watch Elder Holland and then answer my question. I'm going to pick it up where he says, why? Why do we live the law of chastity? And don't think chapel why, think temple why. Problems. I certainly do not intend to wring our hands over the dangers that such outside influences may hold for us. As serious as such contemporary realities are, I wish to discuss this topic in quite a different way. Discuss it specifically for Latter-day Saints, primarily young, unmarried Latter-day Saints. That's not us. We're taking it to the next university. level. So I conspicuously set aside the horrors of AIDS and national statistics of illegitimate pregnancy, and I speak rather to a gospel-based view of personal purity. Indeed, I wish to do something even a bit more difficult than listing the do's and don'ts of personal purity. I wish to speak to the best of my ability on why we should be clean, on why moral discipline is such a significant matter in God's eyes. I know that sounds presumptuous, but a philosopher once said, tell me sufficiently why a thing should be done and I will move heaven and earth to do it, hoping you will feel the same as he and with full recognition of my limitations, I wish to try to give at least a partial answer to why be morally clean. I will need first to pose briefly what I see as the doctrinal seriousness of the matter before then offering just three reasons for such seriousness. May I begin with one half of a nine-line poem by Robert Frost. The other half is worth a sermon, but it'll have to wait for another day. Here are the first four lines of Frost's Fire and Ice. Some say the world will end in fire. Some say in ice. From what I've tasted of desire, I hold with those who favor fire. A second, less poetic, but more specific opinion is offered by the writer of Proverbs. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one go upon hot coals and his feet not be burned? Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor, and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. In getting then at the doctrinal seriousness, 
Why is this matter of sexual relationship so severe that fire is almost always the metaphor? With passion pictured vividly in flames. What is there in the potentially hurtful heat of this that leaves one's soul, or perhaps the whole world, according to Frost, destroyed? If that flame is left unchecked and those passions unrestrained, what is there in all of this that prompts Alma to warn his son Corianton that sexual transgression is, quote, an abomination in the sight of the Lord, yea, most abominable above all sins, save it be the shedding of innocent blood, or the denying the Holy Ghost, close quote. Now, setting aside for a moment sins against the Holy Ghost, that's a special category in itself, it is LDS doctrine that sexual transgression is second only to murder in the Lord's list of life's most serious sins. By assigning such rank to a physical appetite so conspicuously evident in all of us, what is God trying to tell us about its place in his plan for all men and women in mortality? I submit to you he is doing precisely that, commenting about the very plan of life itself. Clearly, God's greatest concerns regarding mortality are how one gets into this world and how one gets out of it. These are the two most important issues in our very personal and carefully supervised progress. These are the two issues which He, as our Creator and Father and Guide, wishes most to reserve to himself. These are the two matters which he has repeatedly told us he wants us never to touch illegally, illicitly, unfaithfully, without sanction. Now, as for the taking of life, we're generally quite responsible. Most people, it seems to me, readily sense the sanctity of life, and as a rule do not run up to friends, put a loaded revolver to their heads, and cavalierly pull the trigger. Furthermore, when there's a click of the hammer instead of an explosion of lead, and a possible tragedy seems to have been averted, no one in such a circumstance would be so stupid as to sigh and say, Oh good, I didn't go all the way. No, all the way or not, the insanity of such action with fatal powder and steel is obvious on the face of it. Such a person running about this campus with an arsenal of loaded handguns or military weaponry aimed at fellow students would be apprehended, prosecuted, and institutionalized if in fact such a lunatic would not himself have been killed in all the pandemonium. After such a fictitious moment on this campus, and you're too young to remember my college years when the sniper wasn't fictitious, killing 12 of his fellow students at the University of Texas, Nevertheless, on this campus, in our fictitious moment, we would undoubtedly sit in our dorms and classrooms with terror on our minds for many months to come, wondering how such a thing could possibly happen, especially at BYU. No, fortunately, in the case of how life is taken, I think we seem to be quite responsible. The seriousness of that does not often have to be spelled out, and not many sermons need to be devoted to it. But in the significance and sanctity of giving life, 
some of us are not responsible at all. And in the larger world, swirling around us, we find near-criminal irresponsibility. What would, in the case of taking life, bring absolute horror and demand grim justice, in the case of giving life, brings dirty jokes and four-letter lyrics and crass carnality on the silver screen, home-owned or downtown, is such a personal act of turpitude so wrong? That question has always been asked, particularly by the guilty. A proverb comes to mind. Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, I have done no wickedness. No murder here. Maybe not. But sexual transgression? He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. Sounds nearly fatal to me. So much then for the doctrinal seriousness. Now with a desire to prevent such painful moments, to avoid what Alma called the inexpressible horror of standing in the presence of God unworthily, and to permit the intimacy, it is your right and your privilege and your delight to enjoy in marriage and that it not be tainted by such crushing remorse and guilt, I wish to give those three reasons I mentioned earlier as to why I believe this is an issue of such magnitude and consequence. First, we simply must understand that revealed, restored, Latter-day Saint doctrine of the soul and of the high and inextricable part the body plays in that doctrine. One of the plain and precious truths restored in this dispensation is that the spirit and the body are the soul of man, and that when the spirit and body are separated, men and women cannot receive a fullness of joy. Certainly that suggests something of the reason why the obtaining of a body is so fundamentally important to the plan of salvation in the first place. Why sin of any kind is such a serious matter, namely, because its, its automatic consequence is death, the separation of the spirit from the body. And then why the resurrection of the body is so central to the great and abiding and eternal triumph of Christ's atonement. So we do not have to be a herd of demonically possessed swine charging down the gathering slopes toward the sea to understand that a body is the great prize of mortal life. And that even a pig's will do for those frenzied spirits that rebelled and to this day remain dispossessed in their first unembodied estate. May I quote a 1913 sermon by Elder James E. Talmadge on this doctrinal point. We have been taught to look upon these bodies as gifts from God. We Latter-day Saints do not regard the body as something to be condemned, something to be abhorred. We regard the body as a sign of our royal birthright. We recognize that those who kept not their first estate were denied that inestimable blessing. We believe that these bodies may be made in very truth the temple of the Holy Ghost. 
It is particular, Brother Talmadge goes on, it, it is peculiar to the theology of the Latter-day Saints that we regard the body as an essential part of the soul. Read your dictionaries, he says, the lexicons and encyclopedias, and you will find that nowhere in Christianity outside of the Church of Jesus Christ is the solemn and eternal truth taught that the soul of man is the body and the spirit combined, close quote. So partly in answer to why such seriousness, we answer that one toying with the God-given and satanically coveted body of another toys with the very soul of that individual, toys with the central purpose and product of life, the very key to life, as Elder Boyd K. Packer once called it. In trivializing the soul of another, please insert the word body there, we trivialize the atonement which saved that soul and guaranteed that body's continued existence. And when one toys with the Son of Righteousness, the Day Star himself, one toys at white heat with a flame hotter and holier than the noonday sun. You cannot do so and not be burned. You cannot with impunity crucify Christ afresh. Exploitation of the body, please insert the word soul there, is in the last analysis an exploitation of him who is the light and the life of the world. Perhaps then here Paul's warning to the Corinthians takes on newer, higher meaning. Quote, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. Flee fornication. He that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Close quote. Our soul, then, is what's at stake. Our spirit and our body. Paul understood that doctrine of the soul every bit as well as James E. Talmadge did. Because it is gospel truth. The purchase price for our fullness of joy, body and spirit eternally united, is the pure and innocent blood of the Savior of this world. We cannot then say in ignorance or defiance, well, it's my life. Or worse yet, it's my body. It is not. You are not your own, Paul said. You were bought with a price. So in answer to the question, why does God care so much about sexual transgression? It is partly because of the precious gift offered by and through his only begotten son, to redeem those souls, those bodies and spirits, we share and abuse in such cheap and tawdry ways. Christ restored the very seeds of eternal lives, and we desecrate them at our peril. The first key reason for personal purity, our souls are involved and at stake. There's number one. Second. May I suggest that human intimacy, that sacred physical union, ordained of God for a married couple, deals with a symbol 
that demands special sanctity. Now, such an act of love between a man and a woman is or certainly was ordained to be a symbol of their total union, union of their hearts, their hopes, their lives, their love, their family, their future, their everything. It's a symbol that we try to suggest in the temple with a word like seal. Prophet Joseph Smith once said we perhaps ought to render such a sacred bond as, as welding, that those united in matrimony and eternal families are welded together, inseparable, if you will, to withstand the temptations of the adversary and the afflictions of mortality. But such a total, virtually unbreakable union, such an unyielding commitment between a man and a woman, can only come with the proximity and the permanence afforded in a marriage covenant. With the union of all they possess, their very hearts and minds, their days and all their dreams. They work together, they cry together, they enjoy Brahms and Beethoven and breakfast together, they sacrifice and save and live together for all the abundance that such a totally intimate life provides such a couple. And the external symbol of that union, the physical manifestation of what is a far deeper spiritual and metaphysical bonding, is the physical blending of two bodies. Indeed, a most beautiful and gratifying expression of that larger, more complete union of eternal purpose and promise. Now, as delicate as it is to mention in such a setting, I nevertheless trust your maturity to understand that physiologically we are created as men and women to fit together in such a union. In this ultimate expression, from one man to one woman, they are as nearly and as literally one as two separate physical bodies can ever be. It is in that act of ultimate physical intimacy we most nearly fulfill the commandment of the Lord given to Adam and Eve, living symbols for all married couples, when he invited them to cleave unto one another only and thus become one flesh. Now, obviously, such a commandment to these two, the first husband and wife of the human family, has unlimited social and cultural and religious implications, as well as the physical. But that is exactly my point. As all couples come to that moment of bonding in mortality, it is to be just such a complete union. That commandment cannot be fulfilled, and that symbolism of one flesh cannot be preserved. If we hastily and guiltily and surreptitiously share intimacy in a darkened corner of a darkened hour, and then just as hastily and guiltily and surreptitiously retreat to our separate worlds, not to eat or live or cry or laugh together, not to do the laundry and the dishes and the homework, not to manage a budget and pay the bills and tend the children and plan for the future. No, we cannot do that until we're truly one, united, bound, linked, tied, welded, sealed, married. Can you see then the moral schizophrenia that comes from pretending we are one? Sharing the physical symbols and physical intimacy of our union, but then fleeing, retreating, severing all other such aspects and symbols of what was meant to be a total obligation, only to unite again, furtively, some other night, 
or worse yet, furtively, and you can tell how cynically I use that word, unite with some other partner who is no more bound to us, no more one with us than the last was, or the one that will come next week or next month or next year or any time before the binding commitments of marriage. You must wait. You must wait until you can give everything. And you cannot give everything until you are at least legally, and for Latter-day Saint purposes, eternally pronounced as one. To give illicitly that which is not yours to give, remember you are not your own, and to give only part of that which cannot be followed with the gift of your whole heart and your whole life and your whole self is its own form of emotional Russian roulette. If you persist in sharing part without the whole, in pursuing satisfaction devoid of symbolism, in giving parts and pieces and inflamed fragments only, you run the terrible risk of such spiritual psychic damage that you may undermine both your physical intimacy and your wholehearted devotion to a truer later love. You may come to that moment of real love or total union only to discover to your horror that what you should have saved has been spent. And mark my words, only God's grace can recover the piecemeal dissipation of your virtue. A good Latter-day Saint friend has written of this issue. Fragmentation enables its users to counterfeit intimacy. If we relate to each other in fragments, at best we miss full relationships. At worst, we manipulate and exploit others for our gratification. Sexual fragmentation can be particularly harmful because it gives powerful physiological rewards, which, though illusory, can temporarily persuade us to overlook the serious deficits in the overall relationship. People may marry for physical gratification and then discover that the illusion of union collapses under the weight of intellectual social and spiritual incompatibility. Sexual fragmentation, to continue the quote, is particularly harmful because it is particularly deceptive. The intense human intimacy that should be enjoyed in and symbolized by sexual union is counterfeited by sensual episodes which suggest but cannot deliver acceptance, understanding, and love. Such encounters mistake the end for the means as lonely, desperate people seek a common denominator which will permit the easiest, quickest gratification." Close quote. Listen to a far more biting observation by a non-Latter-day Saint regarding such acts devoid of both the soul and the symbolism we've been discussing. Our sexuality, he writes, has been animalized, stripped of the intricacy of feeling with which human beings have endowed it, leaving us to contemplate only the act and to fear our impotence in it. It is this animal animalization from which the sexual manuals cannot escape, even when they try to do so, because they're reflections of it. They might as well be textbooks for veterinarians. Ouch. In this matter of counterfeit intimacy and, and deceptive gratification, I express particular caution to the men who hear my message. I've heard... We'll pause there. Okay. There's my question. You've thought about it. You've heard President Holland. What is the difference between chapel law of chastity and temple law of chastity? If 
maybe we break it down into those two categories, souls, symbols. I'll write as best I can. Tell me your thoughts. I think in chapel law chastity, there's kind of this base understanding of just don't don't do it. Um, I think in temple law chastity, it's really put in context of Heavenly Father's plan. Um, and I think, because to me, one of the saddest things about the general Christian world is they look at sexuality as a product of the fall. For us, and I wish more of the world understood this, and why we feel the way we do, and I think when this more in the temple, for us, to be temple law chastity, understand that sexuality is actually in the right place, one of the most God-like features or gifts we have been given. And I would even drop one of. Can you say, can you claim, can you tell me, is there another Am I more godlike in any other way than the creation of life? Do I do anything that is more godlike than creating life? I would drop the one of. It is the most godlike act. Yeah, you can have, and then, and then we're talking about man and woman being one within that. There's a, I think, an understanding, and we see in the temple, Adam and Eve were so wonderfully team and so compatible with the temple. And and so I think it shows that, like Elder Holland was talking about, that chastity in its purest form should mimic what's happening within that relationship. Beautiful. I love that. Beautiful. I just, I think what I am promising for all these years before I was married, I promised to withhold an act until I was married. Now what do I promise? I think this is more than, okay, don't do it with anyone else. This is what? It's not a don't as much as it's a, it's a what? It's a, do you reverence life? And do you reverence her? Going back to this one, who is she? I hate to be inappropriate, but so many people see her body. What is this invitation? To see her soul. I promise, Lord, I will see this woman as the temple invites me to see her. How I treat my wife has everything to do with the law of chastity. Because I think the temple version is, who do you see? Or maybe what do you see when you see her? I think that's a big part of this is stop seeing her in a lustful way and don't see anyone else in a lustful way. See her soul. I know I already said a lot, but I think too, I, I like to think of it 
kind of like with the sacrament, right? With the sacrament, yes, physically, outwardly, we're taking bread and water, but if that's all we would think we're doing, then we're missing the whole point. Just like the people the Savior taught didn't understand that, that it's not just about being fed. Um, and I think we can say the same thing with the law of chastity is in the temple law of chastity, realize that what we're doing is not serious, just merely abstaining when we are married, doing something physical, just like when we're taking the sacrament, we're not just doing, we're not just taking bread and water, but what we're doing is, again, reflecting something inward by yeah. doing something outward. So in that sense, it, it, it's very similar to an ordinance. Yeah. In that way. The chapel version is what I do outwardly. The temple version is what I do inwardly. James. I'm just thinking, like, you put complete oneness, and I think a lot of it's unity as well. And, like, he emphasizes this, but I'm just like, you know, we think about the law of chastity as physical unity with just your spouse. When I think there's a lot of it, he, he's like, um, the one that stood out to me most was, like, spiritual. Like, after one gets married, and then, and I, I see this a lot with some of my friends, is they get married, and, like, that physical kind of fades a little bit, and they begin to see habits and other things that they're like, boy, I didn't see that before. And part of the commitment to living the law of chastity is like that complete unity in everything we do. And when you put two human beings together, when, when you put two human beings in that close proximity, what are they going to do? They're going to work things out. Hopefully. I know my wife's weaknesses better than any of yours because I have a front row seat. Now, here's the, here's the irony. I am very forgiving of your weaknesses and can be what of hers? There's the covenant. I think that's what you're trying to say is temple chastity says, to whom are you going to be the most kind and generous with observed weaknesses? To her or to strangers? Beautiful. You see the higher level of the covenant, please. Yeah, I just I thought it was really interesting how he was talking about um, satisfaction devoid of symbolism. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the like the whole reaction of lust within the body, it's it's avoidance. It's an avoidance tactic. Yeah. And so lust is wanting the satisfaction avoid of the symbolism. Yep. And so avoid of responsibility. Avoid of you could go on and on and on. Yeah. That's that's complete responsibility, yeah. and so it's it's kind of impossible to be lustful of that person because you're avoiding the symbolism behind it. Beautifully stated. It's kind of like the physical, and then we add the spiritual. So the physical is the act, and the spiritual is the responsibility and the covenant, and the soul is to put them together. Therefore. I should be kinder to her than any human being on this planet. I should be more forgiving of her weaknesses, quicker to forgive her than anyone else. And yet, what's the reality across most of America? We are the most critical of the people we're closest to. I think that's 
temple law of chastity. It's much more than chapel chastity. Do you see that? Do you see that invitation to rise up and come into this house and say, will you live the law of chastity? Now, what if you're not married and you make the covenant of chastity? Can you be one with someone you haven't even met yet? I think there's many ways in which you can. I'm sorry, I'm on a date with you. I don't know if you're him or her. I'm going to wait and find out. But if you're not, there's things I can't share with you. Because I am committed to sharing them with her. And until I know you're her, there are things I will not share with you. Not just physical things, but many things that I want to be one with her wherever she is. Here's an interesting thought. Does anyone, I'm going to word it this way specifically. Does anyone make, does anyone commit to obey the law of chastity for themselves when they are eternally married? Interesting, right? Now, I've gone through the temple and obeyed the law of chastity for someone else, and I've repeated it. But when I obeyed the law of chastity for myself, when I made that covenant for my, myself, was I at that moment eternally sealed to a companion? That's an interesting thought. That we make the covenant of chastity before we are sealed. Ponder that. Chastity is an inward determination whether she's there or not, whether he's there or not. I bear you my testimony. I leave you with my solemn testimony that the temple invites increased behavior. The temple is inviting us to be celestial in our hearts, in our heads, with our eyes, with my clicks, one with her in every way, kinder to her than anyone else, more committed to her happiness than anyone else's, more forgiving of her than anyone else. I invite you to live the temple law of chastity. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.